through 36 this morning. It's uh, 4th of July weekend, and Americans are celebrating our freedom as a nation, uh, commemorating the time when the colonies uh, cast off the yoke of the oppressors and declared the independence of the United States of America from the tyranny of British rule. And if you watch uh, much public television, you'll see that the BBC is on quite a bit, and it seems like there's a lot of people interested in, uh, in British drama. You might get the idea that Americans might regret the decision to uh, part ways with the British. Uh, but no, no, King George III was not a nice man. He was a despot, and Americans wanted their freedom. And we were able to justify going to war over it. And countless such coups and uh, rebellions and revolutions have taken place throughout history, freedom fighters seeking independence and the ability to be self-governed, self-governed as a nation. Cicero uh, was a Roman who lived about 100 years before Jesus. He asked the question, what is freedom? What is freedom? And he came up with the answer, that it's the power to live as one wishes. The power to live as one wishes. <clears throat> That's pretty much our culture's definition of uh, freedom. The power to choose. Autonomy. Self-rule, self-determination. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul, Henley said in his uh, poem Invictus. We can't wait to turn 16 and get the sense of freedom that comes from uh, getting the keys to our own car, a sense of freedom that driving brings. Maybe a simple thing, but there's freedom in that. Or to graduate and get out of the house and away from parental authority. Maybe that's not your experience, but it is the experience of a lot of people. Can't wait to get out from under the parents or to become financially independent and live how we've always wanted to live, just to get what I want. Um, whether on a national level or a social, cultural level, think of the sexual revolution of the 60s and since then, or an, an uh, individual level, we want independence. That's pretty high on our list of priorities, maybe the number one priority, especially for Americans, independence. That's what we want. We want the power to live as we wish, to pursue our own happiness, unfettered, without limits, without constraints or consequences. Is that a biblical definition of freedom? Or is, it, uh, or is that just what we assume freedom must be? Is it God's definition? Is it how God uses the word freedom, the power to live as we want? Or is that just something that's innate in our culture and in our own hearts as individuals? We have to let God define our freedom for us. If there's going to be a definition for the word, we should get it from him. After all, true freedom was his idea. It comes from who he is. And in our passage this morning, we're going to look at in just a minute, Jesus offers God's definition of true freedom. And more than just offering a definition of true freedom, he actually offers true freedom itself to anybody who wants it. So let's hear what he has to say. Let's, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we ask for your help as we consider your word. We pray that um, rather than us being judges of your word, 
you would help us to let your word not just judge us, but declare reality for us, to tell us what is true and, um, and how we should think about you and our relationship with you and, and then how we should then live. We pray for your Spirit's help now as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, Jesus has been teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths. It's a fall feast, sort of like Thanksgiving, um, that time of year anyway, that uh, the Jews got together in, in Jerusalem to celebrate. And, um, and this is what he's been, uh, this is sort of the context for everything he's been saying in chapters 7 and 8. And it's been pretty dramatic so far. He's said some pretty interesting things, some things that are hard for people to believe. Um, and uh, the drama has come from the fact there's the Jewish leaders early on sent officers into the temple to arrest him, but they didn't. And then some of the leaders, some of the Pharisees, it says, uh, they challenged Jesus directly. They started asking him hard questions. But it kind of looks like they withdrew because um, you start challenging Jesus directly, and, I mean, it's Jesus. So what are you going to do? You back away slowly. And, uh, and then maybe his teachings here start to have a little positive effect. We see that at the, the end of our, uh, the last passage that we looked at last week in verse 30. says that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Right? So his teaching is having maybe some good positive effects. So what does Jesus do? He keeps on being Jesus. Uh, Mike Kelly who has come and preached for us. He preached a couple times last summer when I was on sabbatical. He uh, used to be the pastor of Green Lake Presbyterian in Seattle, and now he's the director of our uh, church planning network. He actually was preaching the first sermon that my wife and I heard in a PCA church when we visited in town years and years ago. It was 2002 or three, I think it was 2003. And, uh, and we showed up, and it wasn't the main preacher, and so we were kind of disappointed. It's like, oh, we don't get the full experience or whatever, but Mike Kelly was preaching, and he preached on this passage, and it was very memorable to me, and I went back and listened to it again this week, and it was a great, great sermon, uh, but uh, and it, it sort of won us into the denomination. Mike Kelly says, when Jesus finds faith, the first thing he does is pull on it to see how strong it is, <laughs> right? So many Jews started to put their faith in him. And what does he do? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Are you really my disciples? It would look like you abiding in my word. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So after I I first became a Christian, uh, these verses were pretty motivational to me. 
Jesus' teaching here made me want to study the Scriptures, made me want to learn the Scriptures and memorize them and know them, because this just sounds great. Knowing the truth, the truth will set you free. Who doesn't want that? I don't know what that means, but who doesn't want that, <laughs> right? Um, sounds great. Truth will set you free. That's a really good, that's like a slogan. So be a real disciple and abide in his word. Abide, dwell, meditate, chew the cud, supersaturate yourself with the truth, and it'll set you free. But apparently, apparently freedom, at least the way Jesus is talking about it here, apparently freedom isn't for everyone. It's not for everyone. Jesus offers freedom to those who abide in his word, and they, their immediate response was, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, that ain't the way to abide in his word. Right? Here, here are the Jews who believed to some degree or in some sense. They believed in what Jesus was saying, going right back to rejecting his teaching. They're pushing back against him. And because they don't like what they're hearing from Jesus about the fact that they apparently need some sort of freedom that he will offer. Because they don't like that, they become fools in their thinking. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. I guess they forgot about that little blip in their history when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, which is an easy mistake to make because it was only for 400 years. <laughs> and... And the surrounding events practically define their whole relationship to God. When God is introducing himself on the mountain and giving them the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the introduction to the Ten Commandments is, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Every time you hear the Ten Commandments, you hear about how you were slaves. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Forget about the fact that the Assyrians had conquered Israel. Disregard the fact that Judah was carried into Babylonian captivity, and never mind the fact that currently, as they were speaking, Israel was now Roman-occupied territory. They were not free. Forget about all those things. God had delivered them from 400 years of Egyptian slavery. That's longer than the United States of America has been a thing, right? The, the first European settlers were just sort of showing up here 400 years ago. Shakespeare died about 400 years ago. We're talking ancient history. 400 years is a long time. And throughout the Old Testament, their holy scriptures, the Jews, the, the Bible that they had, attention is called time and time again to God having secured their freedom. This is what it means to be in relationship with God. I'm the one who delivers you out of slavery. The Exodus was the major biblical paradigm when he pulled them out of Egypt and everything surrounding that, all the events surrounding that time, which you can read about in the book of Exodus, it was the major biblical paradigm for salvation throughout Israel's history, being delivered from Egyptian slavery by the one true God. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Rejecting Jesus' word, which is what they're doing, he's saying, abide in my word and you'll be my disciples. No, 
No, no thank you. Rejecting Jesus' word always means living in denial of reality. Living in denial. They didn't understand true freedom as God was offering it in Christ. They didn't understand the, the prison from which they needed to be freed. They didn't understand why the Exodus, huge central feature of their scriptures, they didn't understand why that was the paradigm for salvation and for a relationship with God. They didn't like the implications of what Jesus was saying. And that's something people still have in common with them. That's not just the Jews 2,000 years ago, then and there. Right? That's, that's people here and now and even in this room. What do we need freedom from? And Jesus is talking about freedom here. What's he saying we really need? What's our captivity? What's the nature of it? What's the nature of our prison or our slavery? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he says it emphatically. This is one of these times, happens a lot in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, is what he's saying. Let me be clear, you need to hear me on this. The real freedom that you need is freedom from sin because you're enslaved to it and you have been since the garden, as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. Now, they hear this as fighting words. And we'll look more at the conflict that's generated here. There's a serious conflict comes out of this. We'll look more at that next week, the, the rest of... Uh, John chapter 8, but you need to hear this as part of the good news, part of the good news that Jesus is proclaiming about the real freedom that's found in him, because that's what it is, good news. Yes, he's saying your main problem is you. Nobody likes to hear that. Your main problem is, is not out there, it's not with other people, it's not with your circumstances, your main problem is you, it's your heart, it's your affections, it's your selfishness, it's your demand to live life on your own terms, it's your desire for autonomy from God, your desire for self-rule, to be your own God, it's your desire for things like money and sex and power, it, you just want what you want, and that's your major problem. But he's saying, you're enslaved to all that. You're enslaved to it. You can't stop wanting the things that you want. You can't stop your heart attaching itself to these things. You can't stop sinning. You can't help it. You can't help yourself. So sin is your prison. Sin is your captor. Sin is the black hole gravity that you can't escape. And he takes pity on you. And he has mercy for you. He says you need freedom from sin, and he freely offers it to you as a gift of his grace. You don't have to do anything for it. We're talking about a God who says his people should hold on to this truth throughout the centuries. The God who says his people should remember him as the one who delivered them out of the house of slavery. That's the God we're talking about. And how did he do that when he did that a long time ago, when he delivered Israel out of Egypt 
How did he do that? It was through the terrible plague of the death of the firstborn son. That was the main trigger for the Exodus. The terrible plague, the final plague of the death of the firstborn son. And it says in Exodus chapter 4, when God first sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, that uh, song that um, Berta and Brian gave us this morning during the offertory, God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, he says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. So through the death of the firstborn sons, the slave people, whom God had declared to be his own firstborn son, they'd be set free. And it's a stark picture. It's a hard picture of God's provision of the real freedom that we need. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When the Son sets you free, and we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the Son of God come in human flesh. When the Son sets you free, you will no longer be a slave to sin. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll no longer be a slave to sin. There are a lot of bumper stickers that will remind you that freedom is costly. The true freedom that Jesus gives would come at the highest cost. It would come at the cost of his life. Just as it cost the lives so long ago of the Egyptian firstborn sons to set Israel free, it comes at a high price. But the son's freedom is freedom indeed. It's true freedom. And this is what that means. This is what it ultimately means. Verse 35 of our text, the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So when the sun sets you free, you'll no longer be a slave to sin. And that means you will enjoy his very sonship in God's house forever. You will be a son in God's house. Just as Jesus Christ is the son, you will be also the son in God's own house forever. why would anyone want to be free from sin? You've got to ask that question of yourself. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, doesn't matter who you are, you should ask this, this question. Why would you want to be free from sin? Freedom from sin means that our connection to God is reestablished. Communion with God is sort of the antithesis to sin. Right? I read this article a few years ago. <clears throat> it's a, sort of a scientific study about addictions. Addictions are these, they're, they're enslaving. We can't stop them. There's something in us, even biologically, physiologically, that gets rewired with addictions. And they were talking about freedom from addiction. They were talking about, you know, the alternative to being addicted. And they said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. It's relationship. It's what addicts really are looking for is a connection. And when you break the addiction, it has to be accompanied by a reconnection, the reestablishment of human connection in terms of this article and the scientific research done that says that's what's necessary if you're going to be freed from sin and from addiction. 
from enslaving addiction, you're gonna, it's, it's not just you're free and you're sober, it's you're free and you're connected relationally. That's the alternative. So freedom from sin means our connection to God is reestablished. Freedom from sin means freedom to delight in the Son's own relationship with His Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion, that relationship that the Father and the Son have, to delight in that relationship as if it were your own. That's what real freedom means. That's what freedom from sin means. It means communion with God in the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, we talk about freedom from sin, we're just desperate to stop doing bad things, right? So we can stop feeling badly about ourselves, even so that maybe we can feel like we actually deserve God's approval or something. I just can't stand my tormented conscience. I can't stand how badly I feel. I can't stand the guilt. I've got to stop doing whatever it is that makes me feel bad. And that means I've got to stop sin at any cost. It's hard to live with yourself when you've got besetting sins. It's hard to live with yourself when you're addicted to stuff and you've got enslaving sins. But true freedom from sin is, is about so much more than about how, can, how I can live with myself. True freedom from sin is about living with God in Christ. It's about beginning to love him, to respond to his great love with my love, to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, at least beginning to do that. That's what freedom from sin means. Freedom from sin means actually being free to love my neighbor as myself, to some degree. Our freedom is actually quite like God's own freedom. God is free in this sense. He's free to love. It's a freedom to love, to give oneself to another, to give ourselves to each other, rather than demanding and taking and using each other. That's what sin does. And if you're going to be free from that, it's going to look like love, giving yourself for the sake of the other. <clears throat> and that's what God's love looks like, and that's what God's freedom is. He really is free. He's, fr- he's free from all sin. He's free to love. He's free to lay down his life for others. Galatians 5 says, You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. Christ's freedom doesn't mean you have the power to get what you want. It doesn't mean the power of self-rule. Not in the way we usually understand freedom. It doesn't mean that. It means you have the power to give up your rights, to give up your preferences, to give up your comforts, to give up your very life, just like Jesus Christ did. He was free to do that. True freedom is to live according to our created nature in God's image. That means to live with God and to live for God and with and for others. And so caught up in our relationship with God that we live how we were made to live. Living according to your created nature, to your created purpose as as one made in God's image. That's what real freedom is. And so it makes perfect sense that the way to this kind of freedom is abiding in the word of God, abiding in the the word of Christ, abiding in the gospel. makes perfect sense. If our captivity is our rebellion against God and our resistance 
and our distance from Him, if that's what our, our captivity, our sin, is that we've got to be freed from, then freedom means communion, and it means dwelling with God always. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, if you abide, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when he says that you will know the truth, Jesus isn't just saying that you'll have better information about the way things really are, better information about reality. You will. You'll have better information, but he's not just saying that. He's not saying that, you know, bookish Christians are the best type of person, right? Uh, brain on a stick, lots of head knowledge, lots of data, lots of information. That's what knowing the truth is. That's not, he's saying more than that. He's talking as he does throughout John's gospel about the relational knowledge. It's the relational knowledge. That word to know throughout the scriptures is used of marital intimacy. When a man knows his wife, he's talking about marital intimacy, that's the same way John would use this language or that Jesus would use this language as recorded in John's gospel. It's relational knowledge of the one who is himself the truth. That's what Jesus says about himself later in John's gospel. It's relational knowledge of the one who is the truth. And we're talking about the true God whose reality is three persons in perfect relationship perfect connection. So abiding, abiding in Christ's word, it doesn't just mean reading the Bible a lot, having memorized a bunch of data, being able to do Bible trivia real well. Abiding in Christ's word means settling in. That's what that word means. Um, Abiding, it's kind of an archaic English term, dwelling. It means dwelling. It means settling in and making your home in Christ's revelation of God to you for your relationship with him. Christ reveals God to you for a relationship, and abiding in his word means settling in and making your home there. It means being absorbed. It means being consumed and captivated and preoccupied with Christ where there is true freedom, where we can truly find ourselves at home with God, enjoying the son's own relationship as as if we were sons of God himself, as a gift of his grace. So receive Christ's word of grace and put your trust in him and find real freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you've spoken this word into the world, and in our hearing and into our very hearts by your Holy Spirit. We, we thank you that your word toward us is Jesus Christ himself. It's a beautiful and lovely word that we hear about you from Jesus. The fact that you are the sort of God who's willing to lay down your life for us out of love for people who don't deserve it. And uh, you have won us to yourself through Christ and by your Holy Spirit. And so um, we pray that you would help us to have the right response to who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel, that response of abiding and making our home in your revelation to us, that response of uh, true freedom, that is uh, the imitation of you, the freedom from sin, communion with you, and the ability to, to respond with love 
toward you and, and uh, toward our neighbors. We pray that you would make us more and more like Christ in whose image we are being refashioned through your great redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.